Good morning. Today's reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their, eye, and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, Just by a show of hands, who, how many of you, have your Christmas dec- decorations up at this point. Okay, all right, me too, me too. I never thought I was gonna be one of those people, but I'm cool with it, I suppose. Um, uh, let me pray for us, and then we're gonna go ahead and get into our text this morning. Our good, perfect, gracious King, uh, we wanna say, Lord, that we love you, Uh, We praise you, God. We're thankful for you this morning. We're thankful for each other. We're thankful for your word. And God, I just ask that you would open our hearts uh, so that we might know better who you are, God. You are our rock and our fortress. You are the foundation that we can put all of our assurance and confidence on. Uh, We love you, Lord. We ask, God, that you'd please fill us with your Holy Spirit, God. Make us more like your Son, And help us to trust and believe in him always. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, but I quickly wanted to introduce uh, the series that we're going to be going through for Advent. So for the next four weeks, uh, we are going to be going through some selected texts in the book of Isaiah. And the main reason I want to do this is because Isaiah gives us a very clear picture of the offices, or, or I could say the roles that Jesus Christ fulfills. And those roles are king, priest, and prophet. 
So for people in the Old Testament, their expectations would have been significantly shaped by what is seen here in the book of Isaiah, right? They were expecting their king, their priest, and their prophet. So just to kind of go over really quickly where we're going to be going. Um, In Isaiah chapter 11, we see, here you can look up on the screen with me, that uh, this is a prophecy, Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy about a king coming in the line of David, right? We see his, he descends, he's a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse was King David's father, so he's a king in the line of David, and he's going to come and establish God's kingdom on earth, and rule with justice, and mercy, and righteousness, and we see that he has been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord for this purpose. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Now, when we get to Isaiah chapter 42, we see another figure who is anointed by the Spirit of the Lord in in the same way, right? The Spirit of the Lord has been put upon this figure, and we see that this figure is identified as the servant. Now, the servant's work is identical to that of a priest, So the servant, what the servant does is he atones for the sins of the people. He takes away their transgression. So he does a priestly work and he is anointed by God's spirit for that reason. And then lastly, we get to Isaiah chapter 61. And this time we see a prophetic figure, someone who is tasked with proclaiming the truth of God's word and being an agent of God's restoration. So here we have a prophet that is anointed by God's spirit for this work. Now, of course, all these texts in Isaiah point us to Jesus Christ, and there are a number of ways that we know that Jesus is the one who has received God's spirit, and now he gives it in its fullness Right? He, is, he is the spirit of God without measure, and now he gives it to his people. Uh, but I think the main way we see all these texts connect in Jesus Christ is when we think about the life of Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 3, right at the baptism of Jesus, the spirit descends upon Jesus Christ and rests upon him, mirroring that exact same language that we've seen in Isaiah. So the spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove and rests upon Jesus. So for the people present at Jesus's baptism who saw this happen, do you know what they would have thought to themselves? They would have thought, finally, salvation is at hand, right? God is making good on his promises. Our expectations are being fulfilled. Expectations for a king, a priest, and a prophet. Expectations is why Isaiah is so important for us. Now, I I don't know about you all, but for years and years of my Christian life, for years after I submitted my life and all of my desires to Jesus Christ, the only expectation that was built up for me in Christianity was a set of rules. Law-keeping. Do better, try harder. 
going into Advent season, year after year, coming out of Advent season, year after year. What the expectation that was developed for me was do better, try harder. And you know what? If that's all we have to expect, then might as well get up and leave right now. But that is not the message of Christianity. It is not do better, try harder. The message message of Jesus Christ is that he has done it with his final words on the cross. He said, it is finished. And for as long as I am here at Pillar Church, I want to explore the full weight and implications of those three words with you. It is finished. That is what we have to expect from our Savior. Now, the context for this message, the context of Advent season, and the entire context of the book of Isaiah is really wrapped up into this one chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, that presents us with a sovereign God who has no equal whose judgments are inscrutable. I mean, just think, just take a minute and put yourself, and just imagine if you were in Isaiah's position. Standing before this God, the temple is shaking, the hem of his robe is filling the room. The transcendent sovereignty of God is the context for Advent. It's the context for the entire book of Isaiah. And here is where we really are getting into our sermon this morning. You know, when I first became a Christian, um, a lot of good things were happening, right? I got saved. That's the best thing. Um, I had good discipleship, a good community, Spiritual disciplines were really highly emphasized, but I only understood, or it was only taught to me, half of the gospel, that Jesus Christ paid for my sins, like I have a clean slate now, and now it's up to me to really show myself as someone who should be loved by God, right? Uh, Now is the time to uh, show yourself as someone who's zealous for the Lord, Right? You, you love Jesus, right? Get, so get your act in order, get your life together, be more disciplined. Right? It's do better, try harder. I didn't understand that God provides all my performance, all my law keeping as well. My understanding of the gospel was like Jesus gave you a clean slate. So now, in some sense, it's up to me to earn God's favor with my zeal and my righteous living. And I was so burdened by this because it really boils down to one question. How do I know that God loves me? How do I know that he favors me? Like, is is he reluctantly letting me into heaven? Like, I knew that I would be saved because of the blood of Jesus, but does he actually want me there? How do I know that God loves me? Is it through my performance? Is it through how good I may or may not be living? Or is it something else? It wasn't until about four years after I became a Christian that I really reflected 
on Isaiah chapter 6. And what struck me was just how magnificent God is. Like the gravity of his presence, his tremendous holiness, how awesome and terrifying he is. He is the sovereign king, unmatched. And what became so clear to me is that no one can come before this throne and think to themselves, I've done something to be favored, right? I'm great. You can't even entertain that thought. The only response is awe. The right kind of fear of the Lord. I mean, you just take a look at Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He lived righteously. He gave his life to serve the Lord, and he heard from God. So compared to other people, Isaiah is like up here, right? But before God, what does he have to say? Woe is me. Before God, there is only one verdict. Woe is me. So in my little brain, I understood that do better, try harder does not work here. Doesn't work before this God. The only reason that Isaiah could stand in the presence of God is because God chose to have mercy on him. It wasn't Isaiah's performance that led to his salvation. It was God's character. I had to have my eyes taken off of myself and then fixed on God to see that God chose to love me and have mercy on me, not because of who I am, but because of who he is. It's because of the goodness of his character. For me, it's kind of like the transition from being engaged uh, to, to becoming married. And maybe some of you can relate to this. But when I got engaged, you know, of course, people are excited because they're like, Yes, I finally found this person who's going to love me for who I am. But I also think that engaged people are kind of like the best versions of themselves. <laughs> At least that was true for me. Like some people peak in high school. I was almost that guy, but thankfully I got engaged when I was 27. And um, what I realized after... Uh, I got married, is that when I was engaged, right, I was so actively trying to, to give attention to my fiance and, and pay attention to what she wanted, how I can love her, right? I was super disciplined, like spiritually and in the gym. Like I was making it my mission to maximize my genetic potential <laughs> in the weight room. And it was motivated purely from a place of vanity. Um, you know, when I, when I made my vows to my wife, I promised with all the sincerity in my heart that I was going to do my absolute best to love her as Christ loved the church. I really meant that. But since then, I cannot tell you how many times I have fallen short of that mark. I've been far too annoying, far too impatient, too many times. I'm less disciplined now uh, in the gym and with 
other things, right? I'm, my attention's being torn apart by all these different things. So I'm less consistent in the weight room. I slowly but surely am developing handles around my waist. Um, I haven't gotten any taller. So on paper, you could say that there is less to love about me now. Or maybe there's more to love about me. But I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Um, There is less reason. I've given Brenna less reasons to love me. Yet today I am a thousand times more confident in the endurance of her love for me, the steadfastness of her love for me. And it's not because I'm great. It's because I have gotten to know her better. Like my assurance of her love for me is less about me and more about the goodness of her character. In a similar way, it is like that with God. Like how do I know that God loves me? Is it because I did better today than I did yesterday? No, it's because of the goodness of his character. Knowing God better will produce a deeper assurance of his love for us. And for me, I had to see the transcendent sovereign majesty. I had to see the holiness of God in order to understand that his affection, his commitment, his love toward me wasn't going to go anywhere. Right? I didn't earn those things by anything that I had done. Not my zeal, not my good works, not even my love for God. It was his gift. That's it. I had to see God's holy character, his transcendent majesty in order to understand that. And that really is the point that I'm trying to make this morning. That God's holiness matters. It should matter to us. Because if we don't understand that God is holy, then we don't understand who he is. God's holiness, what we see here in the throne, teaches us that God loves us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So put differently here, our main point, God is perfect in holiness. Therefore, he shows favor to us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Uh, Two points this morning. Number one, confronted by a holy God. And number two, cleansed by a holy God. Now, continuing with point number one here. uh, There are a couple of observations that we can make that help set up our understanding of God's holiness. And the first is the historical setting of this vision. It took place in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that just might sound like gibberish to you. King Uzziah, King Uwada, um, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Didn't mean a whole lot to me when I first read it. But what I want us to understand is that King Uzziah was a very successful king in Judah. Uh, He led the nation in prosperity. He restored the borders of the country. Um, So that means he took back territory that was being occupied by the enemy. And then he ruled for 52 years. That's a long time. And that 
that meant an incredible amount of stability for uh, the nation of Judah. Right? His reign was even compared to a second golden age. So this year, the year that he died, was certainly a time of mourning for Judah. A feeling of depression would have been across the land. Uh, some people have likened it to um, like when JFK was assassinated. I'm not sure if many of us were alive then at that point. Um, I wasn't, but, but I, do, I do remember another very clear time of mourning uh, in our country's history. Right, 9-11. I was in the fourth grade at the time, uh, but I remember clearly the mourning the turmoil, and just the great deal of instability that, that that caused in our country. Now, the point that Isaiah makes in adding this historical detail is not just to communicate the precision of his message, but it is to communicate that something on a much deeper level. And that is, when your confidence is shaken, when your circumstances seem bleak, when you feel unstable and you don't know whether or not you're going to be okay, remember, the king is seated on his throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the king who rules over everything. And it is this moment that propels Isaiah through a lifetime of difficult ministry persecution, hardship. He saw that the king was on his throne and that was enough for him. You know, I understand that for a lot of you, there is an incredible amount of instability in your lives. A lot of question marks, right? Uncertainty is kind of like a staple in your life. But I want to tell you that one thing is certain. The Lord reigns. Let this reality be your anchor. Take refuge in the fact that God is king. And you know what? If that's going to be our refuge, that means that we need to submit to his lordship. There is no covering from our king without submitting to that lordship. Submitting to his rule. Now, as Isaiah's vision continues, we see how this God who sustains in times of hardship is described. Again, we're struck by scale, grandeur, the transcendent otherworldliness of God's presence on the throne. What a place to find yourself in. And it is the presence of God that we see here as being so fear-inducing. Isaiah is afraid. He is terrified at the sight of him, at the sight of God on his throne. And that is because God is the Holy One. He is the superlative Holy. And this truth is what the angels, they're singing to each other. The seraphim cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. So, of course, we want to 
fill out our understanding of what this word means. Now, in the Bible, the word holy describes being unique, separated, and distinct. So it's this distinction, it's difference. Maybe we've heard that the term holy means to be set apart. So for example, as God's people, we have been made holy. We have been set apart. Uh, We've been put into God's family, set aside for his purpose. And you know what? That's how we are distinct from everyone else. That's how we've been made holy. And God is the set apart one. But that still leaves the question, how? How is God set apart? Well, God is fundamentally set apart from everything else in the fact that he is God and nothing else is. He is the only creator. He is absolutely morally perfect, infinitely powerful, and not bound by space and time. Nothing else is like that. So when the word holy is used in the context of God, it describes his distinct, exclusive, and separated divine nature. It describes his perfection as God. It is the confession that the Lord is God and there is no other. To say that God is holy is to say that he is distinct from all others in his divine nature that he is separated and exalted above everything else in his perfect godness. He is different from us and from the rest of the created order. Eternal, infinite, uncreated, living at all times and all places with all power because creation cannot contain him. He is perfect in justice and righteousness and wisdom and love and in all the indescribable perfections that make him so far beyond us. That is what it means to say that God is holy. Again, it is the confession that the Lord is God and there is no other. There is no one like him. So when... Isaiah sees God. Perhaps now we can see why he was so alarmed. His response to God's presence, again, is woe is me. Now this is a term of cursing. Isaiah would have been very familiar with it. In fact, he spent all of chapter 5 giving a pronouncement of woe onto the wicked people of his nation. Okay, so a pronouncement of woe is what happens when God is coming in judgment upon a people. But rather than sentencing judgment on Isaiah, what does God do? He cleanses him. He atones for his sin. He shows mercy on him. Okay, and this brings us to our last point. So again, we want to try to put ourselves in Isaiah's shoes. Kind of picture it as he would have seen it. So here we have God who sends an angel, a seraphim, and seraphim means burning one. So he sends this angel to press a burning coal to Isaiah's lips. So here we have a flaming warrior angel approaching Isaiah with a coal that he can't even touch. So when the burning one can't even touch the burning coal, 
that's when we know that something is wrong. Like it's not, it shouldn't end well for Isaiah at that point. And that's because in the Old Testament, in fact, in the Bible, uh, coals from the altar of God, the fire of God is associated with judgment. So I have to give you a couple of references. Psalm 11 verse six says, let God rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. In the New Testament, Revelation chapter 8, here we see a vision of an angel who takes fire from the altar of God and then casts it upon the earth. And no matter how you interpret the book of Revelation, what you can clearly see is that bad things happen after that, right? Judgment comes upon the earth. So the fire of God, coals from his altar, they symbolize God's judgment. But what happens here? God uses this instrument of judgment to atone for Isaiah's sins. Isaiah's sins are covered, and his penalty is satisfied through the fire of judgment. So what God is doing here is he is saving through judgment. And you know, the text doesn't tell us why God did this for Isaiah, why he saved him, but there is a clear implication that God as king was sovereignly free to do so. It is God's kingdom and he retains every right to save who he will, even those who are cursed because of their unrighteousness. Even people like me and you. And praise God that he is who he is and that he chooses to do that. Now there is an ultimate instance in the Bible where God takes an instrument of judgment and uses it to atone for sin. The pinnacle, the fulfillment of God's righteous salvation, a salvation that both satisfies God's justice and provides mercy for God's people is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered the curse and the instrument of God's judgment so that we could be saved rescued from the holy wrath of God, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took the burning of that coal. He took the burning of that judgment so that it could have a cleansing, consecrating effect on us. God saved his people by exercising judgment on his beloved son, the very son we sing about in our Christmas songs. The little Lord Jesus, away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and be by my side till morning is nigh. 
that son, that beautiful son, that perfect sinless child grew up to be a perfect sinless man and he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. Do you think God loved that son? Of course he did. There's no question about it. Now what do you think that communicates about God's commitment and the endurance of his love for us? Isaiah has something to tell us about this son. And before we get to anything about his role as king, priest, and prophet, we see that Isaiah foreshadows in the strongest way possible that Jesus is God. You see, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, right, this chapter about God on his throne, in his throne room. It, the, Isaiah 6.10 is quoted in the New Testament in John chapter 12, verse 41. And I, I just want us to look at this together, so go ahead, turn to John 12. And for context, I want to start in verse 37. You should see a heading that says, The Unbelief of the People. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, and here's our quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now pay attention to John's conclusion here in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. That is referring to Jesus's glory and spoke of him. So Jesus is identified as the subject at the beginning of the passage and here in verse 41. John is telling us that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Now that's interesting because in Isaiah chapter 6, whose glory did Isaiah see? God's. He saw God's glory. Now according to John, whose glory did Isaiah see? Jesus's. Jesus' glory is God's glory. It was Jesus' glorious presence on that throne. In other words, we can say with absolute confidence that Jesus is God. God the Son. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Uncreated, immeasurable, eternal the God that we sing about in our worship services. 
who we pray to and say, let your kingdom come. And we confess as being holy, holy, holy. This glorious God became flesh and he went to the cross to suffer an agonizing death and the full force of his own wrath against sin so that our sins could be blotted out. So that God's terrifying presence, the presence that would make us come undone, would become for us the magnificent, all-satisfying presence of the one and only triune God who is the true treasure and joy of all his people. The sovereign king chose to do that. The one who is the supreme authority. He has no equal. He has no constraints, no obligations. No one convinced him to show us mercy. He did that freely of his own accord, according to the goodness of his own character. So I'll ask the question, does God love you? There is no question about it. God loves us, not because of how well we're doing, not because of how zealous we are, not because we did better today than yesterday, but, because he, but he loves us because of his own character. Not based on our performance, but because he is the one, the only one, who is holy, holy, holy. And to close our time this morning, I just want to invite you to close your eyes and again, I want you to imagine that you are where Isaiah is. Standing in the temple before the throne of God. There's smoke filling the room. The foundations of the temple are shaking. The hem of his robe is filling the space. Angels on either side of the throne crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Your vision begins to blur. Your fingers start to go numb because you are terrified in the presence of this almighty, sovereign God. But instead of judgment... What God has for you is atonement. He has salvation for you. He takes away your sins. He eliminates them. They are no more. And the reason, the reason he has done this is because he has loved us with an eternal love. We have the privilege of this God's love. How would you feel in that moment? How would you respond to the Lord? I think with 
gratitude and love in our hearts, the only response we would be able to make is send me. I'll go. Use me, Lord. Take me into your family according to your grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, thank you that you are good, that we can always rely and rest on the goodness of your character. God, our performance is unstable. We do better or worse from this day to the next, but you are always the same. Your love for us never changes. Your goodwill towards us never changes. And the access that you have granted to us as your children will never be taken away. Lord, we are utterly privileged to belong to you. And I pray that you would use us for your glory. And I pray that we would enjoy your presence because you have granted us access into your throne, throne through the blood, through the precious blood of your son. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.